All right, welcome to The Real and the Gritty with Danielle. And today we have the beautiful Jessie from Fertility Charting. She specializes in natural conception and contraception. So teaching the sympathermal method and empowering women and couples to have all the knowledge to make them feel truly confident, safe, secure when using the sympathermal method as contra uh, contraception, if I can talk. Welcome, Jesse. How are you? Hi, Danielle. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on today to have a chat. It's one of my favorite topics in the world, and I'm excited to just, yeah, talk talk about it all and um, hopefully provide some helpful info for your listeners and, yeah. Because really, it's an old concept, but it's very new in terms of people actually learning about the FAIR method. Is that right? Yeah, it's really fascinating. So there's actually a very long history of the development of um, the symptothermal method. So, um, you know, while it's been around in many different forms since really the 1930s um, and then it's through like the 1940s and 50s, that's like the development phase. It's really, I feel, becoming more and more popular um, as the years go on. And so it's, you know, we've got this, um, you know, historical method and research which has historically been used more so in like catholic communities because that's where it was more so developed but now we've got a lot of people who are just you know interested for the purposes of avoiding you know the side effects of hormonal contraception or having to use barrier methods like condoms all the time so a lot of people you know who are interested in alternative health um, and optimizing their hormonal health heading more in that direction towards natural birth control and natural contraception or even you know optimizing their chances of conception and so we've got this you know influx of people you know in our modern world our modern society that are really heading more in that direction so it's really exciting to see but like you say, um, the symptothermal method does have a very um, long history behind it. So um, basically starting in around the 1930s, there was, um, Dang, that's I know, <laughs> isn't it such, it's such a long time ago. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, our, our ancestors, like, you know, our great grandmothers and I'm actually terrible at maths, but I don't know how many great, great grandmothers that would go back. Great. Great. Maybe great, great. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's the kind of things that they they might not have even had access to or knowledge about because, of, you know, they didn't have social media. But anyway, it started out, you know, with discoveries around how our basal body temperature um, is impacted by ovulation. Yeah. And that was kind of um, combined into um, research that had already been done about um I guess, like calculations. So, you know, counting days on a cycle and, and how that relates to fertility. So that was combined. And then later on in the 40s and 50s, there was a lot of research, um, especially here in Australia with um, the, the Billings method. So John and Evelyn Billings, two doctors, did a lot of research into cervical mucus as well. And it combined, so temperatures and cervical mucus. So from around the mid-1950s onwards is when the symptothermal method was really born. So there is a really long, beautiful history there. Um, of research championed by you know gynecologists and doctors and research scientists biophysicists there's a huge amount of research behind it so yeah as you say it's super exciting to see it you know flourishing in a modern world yes and 
I know this, you get this question all the time, but why haven't we been taught this? And, you know, <laughs> there, obviously there's some like answers there that come to mind straight away, but what do you, like, why not? It is such a good question. And I, I often wonder this myself. I mean, where to begin? I think first off, why haven't we been taught this? There's such a lack of education um, for, yeah. you know, for, on our parents in. So our parents, most of them probably have never heard of the symptothermal method. Um, and then from our teachers, you know, I, I think back to when I was in intermediate school doing health education classes and my teacher definitely had very limited knowledge nice. about, you know, fertility um, and the menstrual cycle. Um, and then when you think about, um, you know, in your GP's office, I don't know about you, but I, when I was in my early 20s, I went to the GP's office multiple times and I said, you know, what are my options? Like, I don't want to be on hormonal contraception. I don't want an IUD. I'm like actually really scared of having something shoved up my cervix. Like that's, yeah. scary. that's scary to me. I don't want yeah. that. And I also don't want to use condoms for the rest of my life. So what are, what are my options? And consistently the answer was those are your options there are no more options and yeah and that's so disappointing that there are whole generations of people showing up to the doctor's office and not being given the full picture which is that there are other options and a lot of that comes down to again a lack of education for GPs Mm -hmm. so um, you know when they're going through medical school they may only receive an hour lecture on fertility awareness-based methods for pregnancy prevention. Um, and that's simply not enough to, to feel confident about talking to your patients about fertility no. awareness. And on top of that, there's not a huge amount of research into um, fertility awareness-based methods in terms of the effectiveness of pregnancy prevention. So GPs who, um, you know, they want to keep their patients safe from unintended pregnancy, they're hesitant to say to you, oh, look, you know, there is this method called the symptothermal method because they don't really know how effective that really is, especially because it's got a very high level of user involvement. So they might not know you very well. They're seeing you for maybe 10, 15 minutes. They might not know whether Danielle is the kind of person who is going to be, you know, really um, dedicated and conscientious with tracking fertility biomarkers for all they know, you might not be a good candidate. And it's really hard for them to make those calls in a 10 to 15 minute appointment. Um, So that's definitely part of it. And then my, I guess, um, my skeptical side, my, yeah, my kind of pessimistic side also thinks, well, what are the financial benefits? Because you've got, you've got big pharmaceutical companies who um, champion hormonal contraceptives and insertable devices and that sort of thing. Um, And they are backed by huge, um, huge finances and they can, they can really push for education on those topics. Whereas it's very difficult for say myself to really, I, I don't, you know, I don't have the backing of a pharmaceutical company to waltz on into medical school and say, look, you know, here's a, a three day course for your, for your medical students to learn about fertility awareness. There's just no financial incentive um, to be able to do that, if that makes sense. I yeah. I'm not really explaining myself super well, but no. I think I think that does play into it a little bit. And yeah. that's my that's my pessimistic side. Um, but yeah, there's so many, so many other factors as well. Um, for instance, here in Australia, 
um, we don't really have an overseeing like association or governing body for fertility awareness educators. Mm -hmm. So again, even if your GP wanted to say, yes, here's this other option, they don't really know where to turn. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not like they have brochures to just hand out to you. It's not like they really know the best place to send you. So there are so many different factors to that question. um, And it's such a huge, complex topic and, you know, in an, in an ideal world, I would love to see that change. But, yeah, I, I don't know when or if we will see that change. Yeah. Even if it doesn't, I do feel like there is that positive of a lot of women coming out now being like, I want more knowledge. I want to know what options I do have. And it's like this new realm of women being like, no, we're empowered. We, we want to know how do we know. And from my experience and dealing with clients, it's like they really want to know they'll be on the pill. They've been on the pill for 20 years, 15 years, 10 years. And they're like, I actually want to have a child soon or that it's in the back of their minds now or in the near future. And they've been feeling like crap on the pill, et cetera, et cetera, for so many years, except they've been scared because yes. they're sexually active Um and they really are scared. The more you talk to them, they don't know. They sort of don't have the options from the doctors like you're talking about. And they feel like, where do I find this knowledge? Can I actually do this? Where do I start? And when you already feel a little bit scared and stuck and maybe like in the unknown, taking action is hard in that position, right? Mm. So I think I would really like to start at okay, where is a good place to start to start educating yourself and knowledge and um, really even just like getting it in your mind that there is this other option? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I I know what you mean. So I I really do want to first off validate that feeling of fear and anxiety around especially unintended pregnancy, um, especially when you've been on hormonal contraception for so long. Um, I think we, a lot of people can forget how all-consuming that fear is, especially when we've grown up in a culture that says to us, you're fertile 24-7, you know, you've got to watch out, protect yourself at all times because you can fall pregnant at any moment. And it's really that culture is drummed into us from such a young age um, and it really is that culture of fear. And then add on top of that, you know, an unintended pregnancy does have very real, very serious real-life consequences that can change the trajectory of people's lives. And so it is serious and it is you know, it's good that people take it seriously because I would rather see someone who is a little bit anxious about about the whole thing than someone who's got a really false sense of confidence and is blasé about it all because it is a serious topic. And yeah, yeah so yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's complex. It's that whole thing of especially even when trying to conceive. You know, you get to mm-hmm. you know say your late twenties or your mid thirties and you've decided you want to conceive. It's that whole mindset shift of oh, actually, I'm not fertile 24-7 and now I need to start learning how to identify when I'm fertile. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, that was just a bit of a rant. But my, my advice, so I've got two things that I recommend. So number one is begin the process of educating yourself and 
the very first thing, the easiest thing I can say is if you visit my website, which is yeah. fertilitycharting.com.au, I have a symptothermal mini course. It's completely free. It's available when mm-hmm. you sign up to the newsletter. And it's literally a crash course in what the symptothermal method is and what it involves. And it's just, it's it's all video content. So you've got graphics and you've got me in the corner <laughs> explaining things for you. But it's a really nice way to dip your toes in and just start empowering yourself with knowledge because knowledge is where it all begins and that's number one number two is surrounding yourself with a community of people who are already using the symptothermal method because Mm -hmm. in my opinion if you're trying to do this on your own it can feel very isolating because if you look around you your friends and family your work colleagues are very unlikely to know what the heck the symptothermal method is. You're going to get a lot of blank stares. Some people will even be concerned and say, oh, that doesn't sound safe or, you know. Comments. Yeah, Yeah. the comments, and it's all based on that misinformation and the lack of education. So I definitely recommend building a community of people um, that know what you're talking about and can offer their expertise and their advice. So whether that's with you, Danielle, I'm not sure if you've got a community of your clients that are, you know, all charting and know that sort of thing, or whether, so I have an Instagram page where there's lots of other people who are charting their cycles. And if you visit my website, I have links to two specific Facebook peer support groups. They're not run by me. I'm not affiliated with them, but they're fantastic places to go just to feel less alone and just have that peer support, that moral support. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really good for just building up a bit of confidence. Um, So those are my first two um, pieces of advice to get started. Um, But in terms of like actually relying on the method for pregnancy prevention, that's when you do want to take it really seriously. And there's either two paths that you can go down. So number one, you can hire an instructor. And you'll find a a directory of instructors on my website that you can browse. Or number two, um, you can self-teach. And if you visit my website, there's a whole page dedicated to how best to approach self-teaching in a way that will be as safe as possible for you because it does carry some risks when you're um, kind of going it alone, but it is possible for some people. Um, So, yeah, that's my main advice to get started. That's amazing, both of those options. I think it just fills the gap for both types of people as well um what does that look like so what does the fair method actually look like like what are we talking about here (laughs) I love this yes yeah for everyone who's listening along just with a blank stare on their face let's get right to it and make things a little bit clearer for you um so the symptothermal method is a type of fertility awareness based method so that's FABM for short Um, And it's when we say fertility awareness, that's exactly what it sounds like. So it's learning how to be aware of your fertility status on any given day of the menstrual cycle. And the way that we do that is by charting what are known as fertility biomarkers. So fertility biomarkers are basically outward signs that our body gives us of our internal biology. Mm -hmm. And in the case of the symptothermal method, we have two main fertility biomarkers, two primary fertility biomarkers. The first one is cervical mucus. So you can actually see behind me. I don't, we're leaving a video on the podcast or is this just audio? Yeah, video. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. So um, I, I don't know if you can see. I'll move my, <laughs> my camera so you can actually see. So you've got um, just a, a diagram there showing hands like, like 
um, yeah. holding cervical mucus and testing cervical mucus. So cervical mucus is um, the first uh, fertility biomarker. And the second biomarker that we track is our basal body temperatures, which you can see there, mm -hmm. um, and we, we chart those. So we, we're going to be charting our cervical mucus observations and our basal body temperature observations on a chart. And using that information, we can tell whether we are more or less fertile on any given day. Um, to just give a bit of context to what, you know, what that's all about. So <clears throat> essentially, when you think of the menstrual cycle, um, we, you know, we, we're most familiar, most of us, with our period or menstruation because it's like mm -hmm. the outward sign that we see. Um, but ovulation itself, so the release of an egg from our ovaries, is much more hidden. And if we're not aware of it, if we're not educated about it, we don't really know um, how to track when that happens because we don't really see it happening on the outside like a period. It's an internal yeah. event. Um, <clears throat> and essentially what we can say is that the menstrual cycle is, it can be divided into two main phases, which are um, it's divided, they're broken up by these events of menstruation and ovulation. Mm -hmm. So see, I'll see if I can, what can I see there? So essentially you've got menstruation, you can see um, bleeding there with the cervix. So you've got menstruation and then up until ovulation, this is known as the follicular phase. Mm -hmm. And then after ovulation, up until your next period is what's known as the luteal phase. And if you come down the bottom here um, in the follicular phase, so from menstruation to ovulation, estrogen is your dominant hormone. And you can see that in the blue there. And then in the luteal phase, um, you can see in the green there, we've got progesterone and that's our dominant hormone. And these hormones, estrogen and progesterone, do different things to our fertility biomarkers. So what that means is that we can know which phase of our cycle we're in and we can know when we're approaching ovulation and when we've passed ovulation based on tracking these biomarkers. So um, essentially, after we've ovulated, there's this little egg bursting out. <clears throat> the follicle that's left behind um, it's called the corpus luteum, and it has a fixed lifespan of about 10 to 16 days before it breaks down. And during this time, it's producing this beautiful progesterone. And progesterone has what's known as a thermogenic effect on the body. So it's causing our core body temperature to rise a little bit. So you can see here that after ovulation, our temperature is, is jumping up and it's being sustained at this higher level for as long as that corpus luteum is alive. When the corpus luteum breaks down, progesterone levels drop and our temperatures will drop and our period will arrive. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And then in our follicular phase, with estrogen being the dominant hormone, estrogen has a really interesting impact on our cervix, which is the lower third of our uterus, mm -hmm. and it causes our cervix to produce cervical mucus. And basically, the higher the level of estrogen circulating in our bloodstream, the higher the content of water in our cervical mucus. So the closer you get to ovulating, the more watery and clear and stretchy and slippery your cervical mucus becomes. And so we, we can track changes in our cervical mucus to basically know when we are approaching ovulation. And then after ovulation, this boost of progesterone causes our cervical mucus to usually dry up. And so there's all these different changes that we're tracking and we chart them all on a chart, whether that's a paper chart or using an app like the Read Your Body app. Um, and then we've got specific rules that we use oh. to understand when is a safe day and when is not a safe day. Um, 
what I will say is that that probably sounds a little bit overwhelming to anyone listening for the first time, but that's just this kind of science, basic science behind it. In reality, it's very, very simple. It's as simple as checking your cervical mucus every time you go to the bathroom, which takes about five or 10 seconds. It's not a huge um huge thing and also taking your temperature when you wake in the morning so these are very you know it's it's like tying your shoelaces it really just becomes a part of your everyday life and so for anyone listening who's feeling overwhelmed please let me assure you that yes there is a steep learning curve but once you've got it it's very very simple and it doesn't take long at all and it's an amazing way to connect to your body as well actually starting to bring some awareness of what's going on in my body from day to day which is a beautiful thing that sometimes we can get disconnected from in the society that we are in now so with the mucus when it becomes clear sticky would you say that's like a web it's a web for sperm yeah yeah a web (laughs) that's a really that's a really great analogy so that's actually a fantastic analogy I haven't I haven't heard that before but I like that one um so yeah so the whole purpose of our cervical mucus changing as we get closer to ovulation is to provide ideal conditions for sperm survival because our vagina is actually quite an acidic environment so um sperm usually die quite quickly usually within minutes to hours when they're exposed to the vaginal environment but when we've got cervical mucus present, it's it's buffering that environment. It's matching the alkalinity of semen and it's keeping those sperms safe. Um, I will say for anyone listening, don't assume that if you see sticky or tacky mucus that that's not going to keep sperm safe because that does help sperm to survive too. But the, the more fertile types do tend to be clear and stretchy and watery and slippery. It's just this range of more to less fertile. Because I do, I do worry that some people listen to podcasts and think, oh, I'm only fertile when I see mucus that looks like egg whites. But that's not the case. There's a huge range of different types of fertile cervical mucus. Anyway, back to the topic. So when the water content is really high, so the closer we get to ovulation, the higher our estrogen levels, the, the higher this water content. And the individual mucus molecules, they basically get oriented in vertical Uh, rows because of the action of the water um, Mm -hmm. and the gravity you know as you're standing up walking around throughout the day and what that means is it kind of creates like swimming lanes for sperm and it means that once they can enter into the cervical mucus they've got a relatively easy passage through the cervix I mean that's very basic it's not an easy passage through the cervix it's still a very complex journey because there are so many different uh, crypts and passageways in the cervix but it just does make things a lot easier for sperm um, and also the the highly fertile cervical mucus has a really nice uh, fructose content so it even provides sperm with energy for the journey because it is a, a pretty big journey for a very small wow. sperm wow yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so it's all kind of working synergistically to basically increase the odds of conception so it's our bodies being so smart and knowing that you know ovulation is is just around the corner here. So let's produce lots of fertile cervical mucus here um, and give sperm the best chance possible to reach our fallopian tubes and be ready and waiting for that egg when we do release it at ovulation. I just want to touch on, it's like popping up in my head. When people say four to five days of your cycle, you're fertile and that's only when you can get pregnant. Is that true or false? Because so this is, a a very good question. So there are different ways to look at this. So number one, 
we release an egg at ovulation Mm -hmm. and that egg lives for 24 hours maximum. During that 24 hours, we can also release additional eggs. So in the case of twins, for example, um, uh, fraternal twins. So that would mean, and that second egg would only live for 24 hours as well. So that would mean the total time that you as an individual are fertile would be 48 hours each menstrual cycle based on the lifespan of the egg. But we have to take into consideration the lifespan of sperm as well. So sperm can survive up to five to seven days in the reproductive tract. So three days is more likely, but it has been shown in some cases that they can survive up to five to seven days. So what that means is combined, we've got the lifespan of the egg and the lifespan of the sperm, and that gives us a six to nine day biological fertile window. So in any menstrual cycle, no matter how long that menstrual cycle is, whether you're having a 28-day menstrual cycle or, you know, maybe, you know, a 100-day menstrual cycle because you've got PCOS, there is really only that uh, maximum biological fertile window of six to nine days. And that's the upper end, remember. So it's often slightly less than that because Mm -hmm. sperm aren't necessarily always surviving five to seven days. It might be closer to three days. So that's our biological fertile window. Now, when we are tracking with the symptothermal method, we are actually not as interested in the biological fertile window. We're interested in something called the method identified fertile window. And that's always going to be longer than the actual biological fertile window. And the reason for that is that we can never predict exactly in advance the exact day and the exact time that this egg is being released. There's no way for us to uh, predict that exact day in advance. So we don't know in advance exactly when that six to nine day biological fertile window is. Instead, instead, what we do with the symptothermal method is we're tracking cervical mucus and basal body temperatures to know number one, when we are approaching ovulation and when that uh, method identified fertile window opens and we have to say, all right, I'm going to consider myself fertile and abstain from sexual intercourse or use barrier methods. And number two, we know when we have past ovulation and that's based on tracking our temperatures and our cervical mucus. And again, we've got very specific rules that you have to learn, method rules to know when that um, method identified window opens and closes. So essentially what what it gives us with the symptothermal method is we end up with three phases of our menstrual cycle. So we end up with um, phase one, which is, you know, at, from the start of your menstrual period up until whatever point it is that the rules deem your fertile window has opened. And then you've got phase two, which is the fertile window when we know that uh, sexual intercourse could result in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in there is that six to nine day biological fertile window. But it's not it's not possible for us to know that um, unless you're getting like a very well-timed ultrasound to pinpoint exactly when that egg was released. Otherwise, we know it's some somewhere in there. We're not sure exactly where, but we know when the method identified fertile window opens and closes. And then you've got phase three, and that's the definitely infertile time because we know that ovulation is passed. There's no more egg to be fertilized even if there was an egg, which there absolutely cannot be, but even if there was an egg, the cervixes are closed and firm. There's no cervical mucus for the sperm to survive in in a way. So that's a very basic overview. Um, but in terms of that biological fertile window, it yeah, it is about six to nine days at an absolute maximum. Um, and that's that's 
can be news to a lot of people who've been told that we're fertile 24 7 so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. wow that's a lot (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot but it also makes sense and it's simple I just feel as though you know as we're taught to brush our teeth from a young age if we got taught this from a young age it would be like all just like a natural thing that we all know and do you know what I mean absolutely do you feel as though our partners they learn this stuff as well or is it mainly the woman where what do you see there so I see both I honestly I probably would see about a 60 40 split so 60 percent of people are learning on their own and maybe 40 percent are learning with their partners um excuse me it's so empowering though when I join an online session with clients and there's a couple on the other end of the screen because it means that you're taking on shared responsibility and that's so important with the symptothermal method because it's not just you. So mm-hmm. sure, you know, you're charting. In some cases, the partner might also be helping to chart biomarkers and, and apply the method rules to identify fertile and infertile times and days and that's fantastic but it also comes down to making shared decisions about sexual activity during that fertile window so you know it what I you know I when I'm running my courses we actually go through a whole module on reproductive intentions which is sitting down with your partner and looking at a scale um, of how seriously you're either wanting to avoid a pregnancy or how seriously you're wanting to achieve a pregnancy And then comparing where you both sit because you're not always on the same page. Mm -hmm. Um, And you've got to have those important conversations, which are sometimes awkward or upsetting or difficult, um, to make sure that it's a a very shared uh, responsibility. Yeah, and where you both know what you're doing and you're both making informed decisions and no one feels that they're in the dark about what's going on because... um, you know, you really want to avoid a situation where your partner is saying, well, I don't know if today is a day where unprotected sex is safe or I don't know if today is a day where I'm supposed to be wearing a condom or or anything like that. So it's very, very important where possible to, to have those conversations together and to learn together. And honestly, I find for most couples it's really super empowering mm. because it's giving this, this new understanding for the partner of how our bodies work and how our menstrual cycles work and sometimes it's really illuminating for them to know that it's normal for us to have that infradian rhythm and to see our energy energies change throughout the cycle and it, it's not it's not um so mysterious for them I guess I would say to to start understanding that yeah and it's the first line of making life as well so I think that's a beautiful thing beautiful thing to understand if you can including their sperm that's going in like that's pretty cool if you can actually understand hang on a second how does this work (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly yeah and it is beautiful like it it really is a, a beautiful thing to learn about together um and one really cool thing which I think is such a cool fact but just in when you were saying you know it's the start of making life like if especially for couples who are trying to conceive there's this really cool fact that when the sperm meets the egg there's actually a very small flash of light which is so cool it's like the start of human life wow yeah Yeah, it's to do with like 
there's some reaction with like the zinc or something. It goes over my head, but you can Google it later. There's literally a little spark of light when the sperm and the egg collide. There you go. I just picture like a little shooting star. I don't know why. That's so, that's so cute. <laughs> that's so cute. <laughs> but what are the like what are the risks? Like if you're sitting here and you're like, okay, this sounds all really amazing. What are the risks there? And you know, how do we sort of not avoid the risk, but empower ourselves even more so? Yeah. So like with any contraceptive method, mm-hmm. the main risk is the risk of unintended pregnancy. And that's something that needs to be taken really seriously, especially if you um, are what we say low on the reproductive intention scale. So you have a serious reason that you want to prevent pregnancy, whether that's you know, socioeconomic or your relationship or your career, whatever it is. Um, if you've got a really serious need to prevent pregnancy, then yeah, that is something that you're going to have to take seriously. The, the number one risk that I see tends to be with people who are self-teaching, and that is uh, basically feeling too confident too soon without mm-hmm. realizing that there are still rules that you haven't understood or you haven't fully internalized and basically putting yourself at risk of unintended pregnancy unknowingly. Um, and that is, that's, it's easier, it's quite easily done. So what I usually say is if at all possible, work with an instructor because that way you've got someone helping you and watching over and basically like they're like a backup and they can say you know yes you've marked that correctly or no you haven't or you know hey Jesse, I just wanted to check in with you but it looks like you've forgotten about how to mark a peak day on your chart that's you've done it incorrectly so let's just make sure you you get this right before you go and go ahead and have unprotected sex that sort of thing um And, you know, if you're someone who perhaps doesn't learn so well by reading a book or you don't, you're not really Mm -hmm. self-motivated to learn on your own, like you really need some external motivation and encouragement, then you might not be a great candidate for self-teaching. And one thing that I do want to make clear is that we actually don't have any studies on the effectiveness of self-teaching. So we don't know really how big that risk is with self-teaching. I I do think self-teaching is absolutely a good option for some people who are Mm -hmm. really like book learners and really motivated and really naturally interested in the topic you'll probably you know do fine but then for some other people it's really a bad fit and I have seen people end up with unintended pregnancies because they are self-teaching and maybe they're just like you know listening to podcasts or scrolling social media and just like taking bits and pieces of rules from different places. You really can't do that. If you want to self-teach, you've got to visit that webpage on my website. Mm-hmm. And there's like four steps that you need to take. One of them is that you need to learn from a method manual um, of a, a proper symptothermal method. So you can't just pick and choose rules from different places of the internet. You've got to really choose an actual method. Um, that's what I would say there. The second risk to be aware of is, well, I guess, it's not so much a risk, it's just something to be aware of is that especially if you're coming off hormonal contraception. So mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of people, what happens is we come off hormonal contraception and suddenly our bodies are ovulating and we're experiencing those beautiful reproductive hormones. So that surge of estrogen and testosterone around ovulation and then progesterone in the luteal phase. And what it can mean is that we actually experience an uptick in libido, which may have been suppressed when we were on hormonal contraception. 
And which feels amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what we're amazing. Like, hello. Yes, it's yeah. like, hello, I'm alive again. And it's fantastic. But you need to be aware of the fact that you're going to have a higher libido around the time of ovulation. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, most people, that's what they'll experience. And that is the time where you're going to be having to either abstain from unprotected sex or relying on barrier methods, so things like condoms. Um, And you need to be aware that that takes a hefty amount of Mm -hmm. self-control. It takes conversations in advance. You don't really want to be trying to navigate that without having chatted to your partner in advance about how you want to approach each phase of your menstrual cycle. So you want to have a game plan in advance. And you also want to be aware that if you are relying on barrier methods during the fertile window, you are deferring to the lower effectiveness of those barrier methods. Um, So things like condoms, which are less effective than abstaining during the fertile window. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's lots of conversations. Yeah, there's lots of conversations to be had. And again, when you're working with an instructor, they're going to be guiding you through that and making sure you're aware of what your options really are. Um, But if you're not with an instructor, just keep in mind that, yes, you might be feeling Mm -hmm. that epic libido and it's so fantastic. But unfortunately, the whole premise of the symptothermal method is that you're either abstaining from sex when you're most fertile and therefore, you know, feeling that libido. Um, So it's it's something to be aware of. There are pros and cons and it doesn't work for everyone. Some people find that they would rather, you know, have a copper IUD or something like that. So just you've got to be aware of, you know, how how things change when you come off hormonal contraception. Is there, um, when you are ovulating, I don't, this is a random question, but is can your partner sort of like feel that in your pheromones? Is that a thing or no? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So there is so many fascinating little tidbits of information out there um, in terms of how ovulation changes the signs and symptoms that we give off. Um, mm. So for example, just really simple things like um, the shape of your jawline changes around the time of ovulation to be more feminine so wow. um, and less masculine. The, um, the, your skin tone actually changes and becomes more flushed um, and pink, so kind of more glowing around the time of ovulation. Um, your lips tend to be fuller and more pink or red. Um, and you, your like blemishes on the skin tend to um, be less visible. Um, there's also research into the fact that around the time of ovulation, you're more likely to choose clothing that accentuates your secondary sex characteristics, so things like breasts. Um, mm-hmm. So it's like your biology wants to conceive, wants to get pregnant around that time. And so it's giving off signals that perhaps you're not super aware of at first glance, but those signals are there. And when you've been with your partner long enough, they tend to be able to notice um, those signals. And it just like anecdotally, I'm not sure if there's research on this. There probably there probably is. But I've had clients and also colleagues say that the smell or the taste of the cervical mucus changes around ovulation mm-hmm. as well. So there's definitely signs that our body gives off. Absolutely. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> But yeah, it's all things that if you actually learn and then you had like, ah, oh, a toolkit there, like, okay, <laughs> okay, yeah. I can make some decisions here. And I think the key thing about all of this is decisions. 
You've got knowledge and you can make informed decisions. Whereas, you know, when you don't have the knowledge and not aware, it's like, well, you, you can't really, can you? You've got the alternative routes over there and they seem like the safest options. However, those over there have huge consequences as well to our place. So if we reverse it just a little bit, and I know we don't have that long left, but when it comes to uh, conception, how does this work as well? It works the exact same way. Uh, Is it a different approach completely or what do you, yeah, what's your advice? Yeah. (laughs) So my advice when you're trying to conceive is that, There is so much information to be gleaned from charting your menstrual cycle. So essentially, yes, it it works like exactly the same as charting for pregnancy prevention. So you're still Mm -hmm. doing exactly the same type of charting, but instead of abstaining from sexual intercourse during your fertile window, that's when you're going to target sex to conceive. Um, And obviously you're really going to be focusing on days where you feel a slippery sensation at the vulva as you're walking around throughout the day, You're going to be focusing on days where you see clear, slippery, stretchy cervical mucus or watery cervical mucus, um, anything that's looking like raw egg whites or slippery fluid, Um, because those days are when sperm have the greatest chance of survival and those days are when you've got the highest probability of conception from having sex on those days. And this is hugely beneficial because a lot of people are just relying on ovulation prediction kits. So, you know, where you go to the pharmacy and you get the little stick that you pee on and it's it's measuring luteinizing hormone um, in your bloodstream, I mean, sorry, in your urine. Um, And what what happens is that a lot of people, they're just relying on those test sticks. And the problem is that you actually, you can't see it on this chart here, but usually the surge of luteinizing Mm -hmm. hormone happens just after this peak of estrogen so it happens mm. like kind of just right there like just before around 24 to 36 hours before the egg is released but for some people by the time they get that positive opk result their cervical mucus is already beginning to dry up and they've missed the days where they had the highest probability of conception because they haven't been checking their cervical mucus and they're just waiting to see that um, that positive OPK. And that can really be really detrimental for some people because it means that they're missing the days where they've got the highest probability to conceive. And so at a very basic level, if you don't want to do full charting, you don't really want to learn too much, it's a bit overwhelming, just start paying attention to your cervical mucus because that's mm. that's giving you the highest you know, chances of maximizing the odds of conception. Um, But one thing I will say is that there's a lot to be gleaned about your hormonal health from charting. And a lot of the information that we can glean tells us um, information about how your body is doing and whether it's going to be able to support a healthy pregnancy. So for example, this luteal phase, usually we like to see 10 to 16 days of raised temperatures in the luteal phase. Mm-hmm. Anything less than that means that if you do conceive, if that egg is fertilized um, and it's trying to implant into the uterine lining, if if you've got a really short luteal phase, the lining of your uterus is potentially beginning to break down and slough away before the egg has a chance to implant. And so that can result in things like um, chemical pregnancies or early miscarriages. Um, And even things like 
extended spotting uh, in the lead up to the to, to your bleed your menstrual period um, low temperatures indicating potential thyroid issues like there's so much that charting can tell us that's really relevant if we're trying to conceive so and yeah so that's that's what i'd say is that i do always recommend charting for couples who are trying to conceive so um, much information yeah. yeah there's a lot of information especially if you've already been trying to conceive for a couple of cycles and you haven't had success yet. Um, there's also um, around the world, there are doctors trained in restorative reproductive medicine. So this has a Catholic leaning to it. So um, you've got to be aware of that. If you're not Catholic, that they, there may be some uh, religious uh, input to that, but you can essentially take charts to these doctors who are trained to read them and can assist you um, in medical and surgical approaches to optimize your hormonal health for conception. Um, mm -hmm. And on the other side, so that's kind of mainstream uh, medical model. On the other side, you've got alternative comp and complementary medicine where you can take charts to say, you know, a Chinese medicine practitioner or yeah. um, a, a trained and qualified naturopath or a health coach of some sort, and they can assist you as well with optimizing your hormonal health. So there's a lot that you can do. And a lot of the time we, you know, I get clients who go to the GP and instead of looking at anything like that, a GP is more likely to say, try for 12 months, try every two to three days having sex. They won't tell you how to target it to specific days of the cycle. They'll just say, try every two to three days mm -hmm. for 12 months. If it doesn't work, we'll refer you for IVF, which I think does couples a huge disservice, um, especially when you look at the research of this research showing that couples who present to IVF clinics think that they have a good understanding of the fertile window, but actually it's a very low percentage. I think it's around 13 12.7% or 13%, it was only that small number that could actually identify the fertile window. And the rest of them weren't really too sure. So mm -hmm. definitely knowledge is power there. Yeah. And if you, again, if we put the emotions back into the situation as well of like, okay, you're trying and then, you know, one partner might be more frustrated than the other. And then it's like this whirlwind and then you've got lack of information and then it, you try and go and want a different alternative route but it's like do we actually go there it's like that's going to give you the most knowledge even if you go to the other side do you know what I mean like you can yeah. have all of this um, absolutely which I think is so important because it helps you go to logical rather than just the emotional spin yes on what's actually happening and why things aren't happening and you know it takes absolutely. away it takes away the fun of it as well I suppose yeah. yeah, I, t I totally agree. And, you know, I've had clients who um, have used charting to help themselves stay um, informed, even when going through um, artificial reproductive techniques. So IUI yeah. and that sort of thing. And it's so empowering for them. And on the other side, if you're someone that prefers not to have all that info, that's totally fine too. But it's just knowing that you get to decide if you want the info, it is there for you to to um, access yeah amazing love your work jesse is there anything that you would want to say to even i work with a lot of 20 year olds uh and all they've ever known is you know traditional contraception is there anything that you would like to say to them to sort of empower them that there is different choices other than what you've already said 
Yes. So I would say you've got the chance now. So I'm 33. I didn't discover this information until I was about 25, 26. I wish that I could go back to my teen self and give myself this info. So if you're discovering this info now, um, it, that's that's such a blessing and a privilege for mm. you because not everyone hears about this until they're much older and they they look back and they think, you know, gosh, what a waste. I wish I had have known this earlier. And the other thing I would say is that um, I'm sure as Danielle probably explains to you if you're her client, that ovulation has so many health benefits for mm. us. So the more years that you can ovulate and bank up exposure to uh, progesterone and estrogen in good quantities, that's protecting you, um, both your current health and your future health for when you hit menopause. So I say, yeah, if it's going to work for you, if it's going to work well with your needs and your lifestyle, that sort of thing, then allowing your body to do what it does naturally has huge health benefits for now and the future. So, yeah, I would say just start looking into it, dip your toes into the knowledge, take it one step at a time and don't feel as though you have to just like dive straight in. You can take your time. You can just learn over the course of a year before deciding that you want to come off hormonal contraception. So that's my advice. <laughs> Thank you. And how does anyone work with you? So essentially you can visit my website and I have a chart to conceive online course, um, which is really beautiful. It has beautiful video modules to work through with the option of consultations and support from myself. Um, and then throughout the year, I do do intakes of a natural contraception group program that's on hold at the moment because I'm on maternity leave. Um, but probably within the next month or two, those will be opening up, spots will be opening up again. So Basically, visit fertilitycharting.com.au and there is so much free information and free resources for you there to get started. Take a few days to read because it's, there's a lot. <laughs> don't want, I don't want to overwhelm you, but it's the kind of website where you want to take a few days to kind of uh, read digest. articles and learn. Yeah, digest. That's the perfect word. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's what I would say. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. That was like, whoo, it's, I think, more conversations like this need to happen on a regular basis because, you know, we don't need to be scared. We can be empowered. There's so much out there to learn still about our own bodies, especially as women. And I think this is an amazing place to start for everybody. I absolutely agree with you. And thank you so much for having me on to chat because it's such a pleasure to chat on the topic and spread awareness. And I really appreciate that. You got me on to have a chat about it. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jesse. Have a good day, everyone. And we'll speak to you soon. Bye.